fans, we are back live with another edition of the Cheap Heat Productions Wrestling Podcast. My name is Jack Kilby, Executive Vice President of Great North Wrestling. And we have a, a man who is a 30-year pro in the professional wrestling industry and an author of an absolutely tremendous book. This one right here, Canada's Remarkable Professional Wrestling Legacy, Uncontrolled Chaos, a book that we'll, we'll be getting into in uh, some detail. Mr. Beefy Goodness, as he's known, Vance Nevada. Vance, welcome to the Cheap Eat Productions podcast. Hey, Jack. It's great to be here and uh, great to see you again. Absolutely. We Before we get into some of the nuts and bolts of the book, given the fact that, that the Cheap Eat Productions podcast is based out of Ireland and we have a lot of fans in, in the UK, I thought it would be appropriate to start off with discussing you know, just just a thumbnail sketch uh, of the many, many years and accomplishments that that you personally have uh, engaged in as a wrestler in this business. Sure, absolutely. You know, I was very fortunate to break into the sport uh, at 17 years old, uh, you know, way back in 1993. And I was trained by an old retired pipeline worker named Ernest Rowe, who is this uh, stocky old Frenchman. And the time that I was training, he was 63 years old and still had a a chop like a like a side of a shovel uh just uh and you know unfortunately for me he was very well connected and very beloved by the winnipeg wrestling scene at that time and so after training with him for several weeks in a quonset out behind his house it was a little bit like rocky four uh you know training in a barn in the middle of winter in canada uh he got me booked into winnipeg and uh started to wrestle there um locally in the community club scene and you know, build notoriety for myself. And after, uh, you know, a few years, it was a Canadian wrestling veteran, uh, Evil Eddie Watts, uh, who had had his greatest success in Mexico and Puerto Rico, who reached out to me and said, hey, we need you in the Maritimes. You need to come down here right now. We're going to we're going to send you a bus ticket, get on the bus. And uh, it was like a three day bus ride to get from Winnipeg to the East Coast. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after that, my career kind of went national. And so I was you know, taking bookings from coast to coast, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. In, in way of the, just the, the scope of, of your career, I know we were fortunate to have you on two great North wrestling shows last year in Ottawa and Smith Falls. You, you've actually wrestled uh, as of last year in every province and territory in this country. Is that correct? Except Quebec, but we're going to rectify that this year because I'll be in Montreal uh, a little bit later on uh, in the fall of this year. Excellent. In, just by, by – uh, I know this is difficult to uh, kind of delineate down, but what sets in, in 2024, I mean, we're experiencing across the world, including Ireland, a real renaissance in uh, independent wrestling. What you, you are perhaps positioned as well as anyone uh, to be able to speak on what sets the Canadian independent scene apart in, in the modern era from others that, that you're aware of, no doubt. I think, you know, one thing that's really exciting about Canadian wrestling right now is that we're a pretty big country and there's a lot of territory to cover. 
So when you're trying to compete in a market like Toronto or Montreal as an independent, it can be very hard to raise above the noise because there's so much competition for the entertainment dollar there where you've got professional sports and live theater and, you know, uh, maybe some hopping nightclubs that are very trendy. But once you get out into the suburbs, you get into some of those rural communities, they don't have the same competition for the dollar and they get fewer and fewer live events uh, because people are going to those larger centers where they've got a bigger market that they can draw from. So when you get into some of those secondary markets that have, you know, 12 to 40,000 people, uh, and live professional wrestling is coming to town, you don't have to need, even need to necessarily have a marquee name on the bill. It's live professional wrestling and, you know, they're going to come out. So it's been really exciting to see, you know, particularly out here in the West, which is where I'm more familiar with, you're seeing record crowds, you know, thrash wrestling promotes out of Kelowna, British Columbia. Uh, they had their biggest crowd in January of 2023 uh, at the Penticton Convention Center. And when they came back there later in the year, they needed a bigger space within the convention center, and they sold that out. Mm -hmm. uh, Vancouver Island Pro Wrestling in Nanaimo, uh, you know, they're gunning for their first uh, major arena show this year after they've been selling out their 600-seat building each and every month. Uh, so they're, you know, now going to be in a 1,400-seat arena uh, with the biggest show that they've done. And of course, now when I've been down to Ontario and had the opportunity to to work with uh, with Great North, you know, they're doing arena shows, you know, where, you know, in the 90s, wrestling kind of got away from arenas. And then we were into, you know, medium sized halls. And then when that wasn't quite drawing, we were into smaller halls. And mm -hmm. a lot of promoters got complacent with that. And they would say, well, we're selling out. Yeah, you're selling out a 300 seat hall. Right. Mm. A 300 seat sale in an arena in the 80s would have been considered a flop. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. really encouraging to see promoters now bringing it back up to a higher level, uh, you know, where it's got a very visible presence and the market is responding. Right. It's also the power of place. Right. People know that that hall holds 150 people, but they know that arena holds 1500. And so if something's happening in the arena, it must be a big deal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you, do you think with um, the the recent uh, merger between WWE and UFC into the TKO phenomenon that uh, they, they had uh, made some statements along the lines that they would be in, in effect through the corporate jargon cutting down on house shows? Do, do you think that is going to further bolster uh, the the independent scene across the country with the with the strange caveat that AEW has done a lot of touring the past year and and they seem to be uh, you know struggling uh, in in Canada as well as other locations uh, to to fill those those big buildings as you say how how do you what what do you make of that I think the biggest uh, you know the you got to try to find the silver lining and one of the biggest boosts to independent wrestling was the pandemic. You know, maybe people were taking live entertainment for granted before then. And they're like, oh, well, wrestling's coming. I'm, I'm going to miss it this time. I'll go see it next time. And now people aren't taking it for granted, right? They don't know if the world might shut down again. So when they have an opportunity to get out to a live event, they do. Um, how that translates into the, you know, to the, to the higher levels of the industry. I mean, uh, AEW does have television they do have action figures you know and on a lot of levels they're trying to compete with the wwe 
but they still don't have the same reach in the Canadian markets in particular that WWE does where, you know, when you talk about professional wrestling to someone that's not a wrestling fan, you know, that's, that's their benchmark, right? You say, I'm a wrestler. Oh, like the Olympics or like WWE, mm-hmm. right? It's one or the other. And that's, um, you know, and I remind guys on the independent circuit all the time, you know, if you're a professional wrestler, they don't necessarily know that independent company that you're wrestling for. They know WWE and not WWE. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's really important that every everything that we do promotes that local brand, promotes that show, promotes that ticket sale, you know, to, to do everything that we can as performers to support the promoters to build their shows because if they're successful, they're going to have us back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just before before we get into the book, I, I wanted to, to ask how you approach – uh, wrestling on on an independent level, and I'll break it down to Great North Wrestling. In our our, our big anniversary show last May, you you uh, got over with the crowd as a very sympathetic babyface against a you know a menacing foreign dude. And then in Smith Falls in July, you, you kind of were the the uh, the heel in the scenario and and got got all that 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 heat that makes a match interesting to the audience. How when when you're going from booking to booking to booking, is is that something that uh, comes with experience to be adaptable like that and go out and do what the what the promoter asks? Yeah, I think you know early in my career, I think I was only about 19 years old. I was about two years in the business, and the and the booker that was working with us at the time said, uh, "Yeah, we're gonna we need to change things up a little bit here, and we're gonna make you a heel." And at the time, I was devastated, you know, a 19-year-old kid with a full head of hair and feeling pretty popular with the fans. And I asked him, why are we doing this? And at the time, he said, it's going to be more devastating to the fans if you turn than if your partner turns. Uh, Because you always did take time to go and sign autographs for everybody in the crowd. Not just the pretty girls, but the old people and and the, the intellectually delayed people. You always made time for the fans. So now if you turn... It hurts them more. And then uh, as I was leaving the room, he said, plus you've got a face that's really easy to hate. (laughs) And uh, at the time I was kind of insulted by that, but I think it ended up being the best thing for me because as a traveling heel, every wrestling organization has that Hulk Hogan that they've built, that guy that they've built their brand around. And so I think the most important thing that I learned very early on is to be unselfish, right? As a, as a traveling spot show heel i know that uh you're not invested in me to build the company around me you're invested in me to help you build your company around that hometown baby face mm-hmm. and so when i can come in i know the business right i know that uh i'm coming in and i've got a very specific assignment to do and it's my job to make sure that i leave that guy more over than when i arrived mm-hmm. and when mm-hmm. you approach your match like that and you give yeah. so much of yourself to your opponent and you give so much of yourself to the company, uh, you know, they appreciate that. And as a result, it's, I've had one of the busiest careers of anyone in my generation. Uh, so going into this May will be 31 years in the business and more than uh, getting close to 1,700 matches in my career. Uh, a lot of those bookings came as a result of being unselfish as a performer. But it's also, you know, especially now because technology is so much easier for us now you know back in the day if you wanted to like cut a promo 
and send it to the promoter in advance, you need to find somebody that has a camera and then you need to get that onto a medium that you can send. Now, when you're able to record those promo videos on your cell phone and send them as quickly as you recorded them and have them posted to social media, the opportunities for us to really do everything that we can within the power and the reach of our network to help every promoter is even greater. And it's, uh, you know, it's wild now because, you know, for example, this week, uh, I'll go to Prince George, British Columbia, which is way in Northern BC. And then two days later, I'm in the middle of Saskatchewan. Then I end up in Calgary, uh, the Friday following, and then Saturday night in Vancouver. Um, but because I now can do all of my promo wherever I am from my phone, I can cut that promo on the side of the road on the way to Saskatoon and have it in Vancouver type of my appearance there. So the visibility that I have for each of my individual bookings is now stretched across Canada and beyond where people are tuning in and saying, geez, what's going on in Vancouver? What's happening in Calgary? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot happening there. So it puts visibility on the companies. And uh, I think, you know, as over the last year, you know, the promoters, you know, as we can see here, they've definitely responded to that and say, this is a guy that we want carrying the flag for the company. This is the guy that we want to have wearing the belt. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I have to put you over for that in terms of you had very different assignments for Great North Wrestling and, and it, it was refreshing to do business with you because unlike some folks, uh, you were you were on point with what we needed and certainly got the job done. So that's always uh, conducive to uh, further opportunities uh, down the road. Let's talk about this wonderful work of yours, Uncontrolled chaos i i have the book i've read it cover to cover i i can't um i can't put it over enough it, it certainly fills a a gap in terms of the overall perspective on pro wrestling in canada what was the the inspiration for you to 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 do this work uh you know for me it started you know, when I was very uh, young in the business, I think I was maybe 18 years old, uh, and I was watching back one of my early matches that was on television. At that time, we had uh, cable access with Shaw in Winnipeg, and um, I didn't get the I didn't actually get the show where I lived. So one time I'm in in the city, and I stayed over after the matches, and we're watching the matches back, and I'm watching uh, the commentators talking about Vance Nevada's trainer was a guy named. Ernest Rowe, and he was a longtime tag team partner of Frenchie Champagne, and they were a successful tag team in Winnipeg in the 1950s. And I'd never heard the name Frenchie Champagne. And being 18 years old, where you think you know everything about everything, I initially thought, ah, oh, you know what? Frenchie Champagne must not have been a big deal because I know everything there is to know about wrestling. I've been a fan since I was 10, and uh, I've never heard his name. But, you know, after a few weeks, like that name just stuck in my head. And I got curious. So I went down to the archives in Winnipeg. You know, I'd come in if I was having a match that night in Winnipeg, I'd come in early and go down to the archives and go through the old microfilms for a few hours. Mm -hmm. But then what I discovered was from the 1950s to the 1970s, Franchi Champagne was the man in Winnipeg wrestling. You know, he was like the, the, the main inventor of the local independent shows that were happening there. Um, he actually promoted one of the first shows that Roddy Piper ever wrestled on. Uh, but he was also a referee when the big shows would come in from Minneapolis and St. Louis. He would be the referee on the cards. He was really like Mr. Wrestling in Winnipeg. 
And as I started to dig into that and the Winnipeg scene, and I started to see like how many guys that went on to great acclaim came out of Winnipeg that's never talked about. Bulldog Bob Brown, Moose Murawski, Roy McClarty, George Gordienko, uh, Gordon Nelson, who wrestled as the outlaw in, uh, in, in the UK. All of these guys came out of Winnipeg, and then, then it made me more curious. And I want to dig into Stampede Wrestling and, and dig further and further and further. So uh, what started as a summer project in 1994 has become a bit of a lifelong obsession. So um, heading into the pandemic, I had a collection of results for wrestling shows in Canada from 1867 to the present, and it was more than 60,000 events. And uh, so when the world shut down for the pandemic, I thought, you know what, I need to take this data that's been collected over 20 years and do something with it in a meaningful way. But nobody wants to buy a big book of a thousand pages of event results. Mm -hmm. So let's take the data out of this. Let's and let's celebrate everybody. Um, there's been definitely books, lots of books written about the hearts and Calgary and Stampede Wrestling but not about what happened in Alberta before the hearts or what's happened since. Uh, and, and I also found that, and maybe it's like, you know, near and dear to my heart as someone that's been like lifelong on the independence, that no matter what book you pick up, they might talk about a territory. They might talk about Calgary or Toronto or Montreal. But when you get to the section on the modern era of wrestling from 1990 to the present, you might get like three pages of representation. And I'm like, there's so much happening right? There's so many guys that have been produced even from the independence. When you look at guys like Kyle O'Reilly, the Bollywood boys, El Fantasmo, uh, Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, you know, guys that got their start on the independence and are now, you know, tremendous stars internationally. Um, there was just so much territory to cover and it's not just Mad Dog Vachon, Brett the Hitman Hart and Gene Kaniski and Whipper Billy Watson, mm -hmm. right? There's you know, thousands of wrestlers, um, whose stories are equally fascinating. And so it just felt really important to me that we find a way to really capture the whole of the contributions of people that have like given their lives to wrestling. Absolutely. You, you talked, you touched on it briefly about your, your research process and some, some people uh, nowadays uh, do a lot of research strictly on the internet and that's, you know, that, that has its place. I'm, I'm sure, but yeah. you actually went down into the archives and pulled out those, uh, those microfiche and, and went through how many hours did you, did you <coughs> devote to that, that sort of hands-on research? And did you find information in there that isn't on the internet? Yeah. You know what? I, I, wouldn't even be able to estimate how many hours because it, it became a point where you would, you know, you would trade with other historians and collectors and there weren't very many at that time when I began in the nineties. Uh, so you, and if you had any information on a territory, typically it was somebody had the full collection every week of results for stampede wrestling in Calgary, but they didn't have the other towns on the loop. So now I know I'm going to be in Regina. So I'm going to show up early. I'm going to go spend a few hours in the, in the library in Regina. And this is before laptops were really as commonplace. So I'm there with my coil bound notebook and I'm scribbling like a madman in shorthand. And then when I would get home, I would transcribe and put it all together. Uh, but now it's, uh, 
you know, it's definitely much easier that a lot of the newspapers are now available online. You can go to like newspapers.com or newspaper archive, and there's a lot more stuff. Uh, and there's a lot more database sites like cagematch.net that a lot mm. of people refer to. But, you know, for example, you know, you might have a, a career like Gino Brito. Cage Match says that he had 400 matches. Really, it was probably closer to 4,000. Mm. Um, and, and what I found particularly is, you know, even as more information has been out there and more people are online and, and they're building on the research, Quebec was a huge void because of those papers being in French. Uh, and I'm not really fluent in French, so that was a really slow slog when you get into, you know, the Quebec archives and you start to understand the patterns of, of words and what some of these things mean. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of guys that, uh, you know, had really, really remarkable careers that we've never heard about ever. And I think about a guy uh, like Sam Chuck. And Sam Chuck is not a household name. He was a, a light heavyweight wrestler in Montreal in the 1930s to 50s. But he wrestled probably more matches than almost everybody but a dozen guys in his career. And uh, up until Haystack Calhoun and Donnie Jonathan Andre the Giant came along, he was also like the winner of the most battle royals in Canadian history up oh, wow. to that point for like 20 years. This This junior heavyweight guy who by all accounts was a bit of a, a prankster and a jokester in the ring. Um, but, you know, if not for a project like this, probably people today wouldn't be talking about Sam Chuck 30 years later or hundred years later, uh, you know, after his career. And that's, that's certainly uh, important, important work. This, this may be kind of a, a difficult question for you, but what would you say would be, you know, aside from those hidden gem uh, careers, what what would you say was the most surprising fact that you uncovered about Canadian wrestling as a whole through your research? I think, you know, the the way that wrestling was promoted, you know, back in the day, and particularly if you look at, you know, uh, Toronto, Montreal, and even, even Stampede out of Calgary, because of the way that it was promoted, they didn't want you to know that it was a network. So, you know, um, Eddie Quinn was the promoter in Montreal and he was the head of the empire there for, you know, close to 30 years. But the other towns that were promoted on the circuit were promoted under that local promoter, right? So when they are in um, Shakutami, it's one promoter. And when they're in uh, Quebec City, it's a different promoter, and it's promoted as that guy presenting. So Dan Walker is the promoter of wrestling in Shakutami. And so if you don't know initially, you're really sort of cobbling that together and trying to understand, like, okay, well, what was the relationship between all of these promoters? That, And then when you put the whole schedule together, you see, oh, no, 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 no. It's Eddie Quinn's circuit, and these are his front men in, the, in those towns. And in, in Toronto, Frank Tunney is the man in Toronto, but he's got, you know, this guy in Niagara Falls and this guy in Hamilton and this guy. So once you're able to see that and put it together, then you also start to see the dates that were happening stateside that we really don't think about. So Vancouver had a really good loop through Tacoma, Spokane, Seattle, and, and some of those border towns in Washington. Quebec had into Vermont and Maine. Uh, Toronto, of course, had into Detroit and into New York State, right, where the reach of Canadian wrestling was really much larger 
than we've ever documented before. Mm -hmm. Fascinating stuff. I wanted to ask you about uh, All-Star Wrestling, Al Tomko's All-Star Promotion out of Vancouver that, that also operated uh, into the uh, United States. But being being the fact that it was the first uh, nationally televised uh, promotion in Canada from coast to coast, do, do you think that it's somehow, for whatever reason, and, and not the NWA version, but but Tom Coast when he when he had the BC TV deal, and uh, it was it was uh, on Saturdays. I, I remember as a five year old kid, my first exposure to pro wrestling was was All Star Wrestling out of Vancouver. <coughs> do, do you think that that for for whatever reason, uh, history is not uh, looking at that accomplishment in, in the the significant context that it should? You know what I I I, I agree with you. Um, you know, Al Tomko uh, didn't didn't uh, inherit a winning situation. So, you know, Al Tomko actually started his career in the 1950s in Winnipeg as a wrestler, and then in the in the 60s he had the opportunity to become the Winnipeg representative for the AWA. So he was the local promoter for AWA in Winnipeg for about 10 years. Uh, and then that relationship with Vern Gagne was starting to sour and he had an opportunity to buy the territory in Vancouver and he went there. But I don't think you're going to find another promoter during that territory era that had more obstacles put in front of him than Al Tomko did. So, you know, he gets into the, the territory, he buys out uh, Sander, Kov no, uh, Sander Kovacs was the local promoter, but uh, Don Owen in Portland also had a piece in that promotion. And Gene Kaniski was also a partner. But after a few years, when Tomko decided to go his own way, now he's made an enemy of Don Owen. He's made an enemy of Sander Kovacs. He's made an enemy of, of Gene Kaniski. So not only do you have the usual stresses that a promoter has of just keeping all those egos in check in your own locker room, now you have Gene Kaniski bringing the AWA into the market. You've got Stampede Wrestling now deciding that because they've got relationships with Japan and they're frequently flying out of Vancouver, now they're going to be running in British Columbia. And that was partly uh, because of Bruce Allen, actually. Brian Adams, a pr producer who was out of Vancouver, really liked the Stampede product. So now you've got Stampede coming in. You've got Gene Kaniski bringing in the AWA. Then WWE's national expansion in, in 86 Sander Kovacs takes over as the front man for the WWF to be coming into the territory. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you've got all of the other little like quarrels and fiefdoms that happen where guys decide, well, I'm unhappy with how you're using me creatively. So I'm going to leave. And now you've got these little other, you know, offshoot outlaw promotions opening up um, at a time when, you know, the economies of wrestling were at a, at a, a increasingly uh, challenging because of the, international competition and, and the WWF coming in and getting on the television and taking over the airwaves. So, um, you know, I had a conversation about Al Tomko and, and some of the negative, you know, heat that he seems to have around people and uh, with Don Leo Jonathan uh, mm -hmm. before he passed away. And Don Leo said, you know, what? I don't think that all of the heat that Al Tomko gets is fair. You know, if, if you have been booked by a promoter and you don't draw, is that all the promoter's fault? Mm -hmm. Right. If he's giving you the platform of television to get yourself over and he's taking you out on the road, if you're not drawing, is that money all the promoter's fault or is it your fault for not being a draw? 
mm-hmm. not being as good as you thought you were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it's interesting that to this day, I mean, those who know, uh, there, there seems to be a lot of negative uh, spin on uh, Tomko. But if you talk about some of his loyalists, like Fuzzy Sayers, they have a, they have a different uh, take on the man. But that, that, that accomplishment so early in the in the mid '80s for national television alone, I think, uh, would uh, would appear to warrant some more respect. As as a as a wrestler, your you have engaged in in another famous. Um, almost mythological phenomenon, so to speak, and that's working for Tony Condello and his his infamous uh, Northern Death Tours. Can can you describe uh, how you you came to participate in those and some of the the notable experiences that that uh, you no doubt had? Sure, you know when you, especially growing up, you know in the business in Winnipeg. It was kind of considered a rite of passage, right? You weren't really a wrestler unless you have survived the death tour. Uh, so, you know, it was a big deal for me to get on one and to go. And then once you've gone, you want to go again to prove that it didn't beat you the first time. And so, you know, for those that aren't familiar, you know, these tours only take place in February of every year because that's the only time when the weather is cold enough that the ice gets thick enough on the, on the, the lakes in Northern Manitoba where you can drive across because there's no roads connecting these communities in fair weather. Uh, so, you know, for the people that live in the communities, the only way in and out of those communities in the summertime or until you get to February is by plane. Uh, so as a result, the cost of living is very, very high there. You know, the cost of fresh food uh, because it has to be flown in. So when you go on these tours, um, you know, you're not only bringing your wrestling gear and, and your and your clothes and the things you need to live, but you're also bringing a third bag, which is your food bag. Because mm-hmm. if you if you rely on the grocery store prices and restaurant prices in those communities, you know, you're not going to come home with any money. So you'd have guys that might have, you know, their the wrestling gear and their clothes packed in two small duffel bags. But then they've got a huge hockey bag with all the food they're going to need for the two or three weeks on the road. Um and when you get into these communities, um, you know, for the first time, it, it can be pretty jarring because there are no hotels. And so when you get into uh, the community, typically we're wrestling in the, the local schools. You get in and you're living in the school. So we're sleeping on gym mats in the gymnasiums in, you know, minus 40 degrees Celsius temperatures, uh, you know, dealing with hauling that ring in and the ropes will be all frozen and coiled up. You have to wait for them to thaw to be able to set up the ring. Um, if you've if you've come off a 23-hour drive over an ice road, uh, oftentimes the first thing you want to do is like get a shower and brush your teeth because you just feel gross. And your toothpaste is frozen. Your shampoo is frozen. Um, and then we, you know, you uh, are living in that environment, and then we'd go cook in the like the school kitchen. And so it's just like a bunch of wrestlers. We just like look like a bunch of refugees, like all like battle worn and, you know, cooking our uh, cooking our meager meals in the in the kitchen. And then, you know, you're off to the next town. But, um, you know, a lot of the the calamity that occurs on those tours is, you know, if the if the road isn't quite ready or if someone has uh, has not respected the road uh, because they don't it's not anywhere on the ice that you can they flood a specific pathway to make it even thicker 
So if someone has gone rogue and they go off that path, well, now they've maybe gone through the lake or through the ice into the lake, but mm. it's also now compromised the whole of that ice. Mm. So, you know, you may get up and say, yeah, great. We only have a three hour drive over the ice road to the next town. Oh, but somebody crashed through that ice. That ice road is compromised. Now we've got a 23 hour drive because we have to detour through the woods another way. So basically you finish the show on the load the ring up drive overnight and all through the next day to get to the next town just in time to set up and, and wrestle again so by the time you get to the end of that tour if you have a bad crew uh and and what i what i mean by that is if you've got a lot of egos on the crew where you don't have an opportunity to be your authentic self with others if you have somebody who's a bully who's like looking for the guys who are cracking uh it can be a very rough and uncomfortable few weeks where he just feels very isolating and alone on top of being frozen like your your feet never warm up the whole time that you're on this tour uh and then when you get back and actually see like franchise restaurants and an actual hotel it's the most mm -hmm. exciting sight of all mm -hmm. yeah it, it it seems that uh, it would be hard to uh hard to take for the not to slam the younger folks but it, it seems like that would separate the um, the serious folks from the from the less than serious. You must have known uh, wrestlers that have done one of those and then called it a, a career, no doubt. There definitely have been where where guys, you know, you you'd be like two weeks into the tour and now you can't find that wrestler and and they've they've uh, broken into a classroom somewhere and they're they're emailing someone to try to fly them out of there. Wow. Uh, you know, send, send me money so I can get a plane ticket and get out of here. Or they just like become like completely withdrawn and antisocial. And they're just like in their own space, rocking in the corner and just, you know, they can't, they can only function enough to get a match out of them. But outside of that, like they just, they want to be out of there. They want to get back to an environment that's more familiar to them. Uh, what was funny is, you know, I did two tours for Candelo and, uh, after the second one, like I thought I need to find somewhere else to go. So I've got a reason not to take this booking next year, you know? <laughs> and uh, I heard that Can-Am wrestling out of Calgary was booking a tour and it was going to be seven weeks long. I didn't even ask where they were going. I just called them and got on that tour, but it turns out that tour was going into the Northwest territories in February, which was even colder. Oh yeah. So <laughs> now we were into minus 70 degrees Celsius, uh, you know, temperatures uh, in very, very unforgiving conditions. And on that tour, we actually did break through the ice one Ooh. night. Uh, you know, driving, you know, between the towns and had to have, a, you know, someone relay back to the town that we had just come from to get help to pull us out. Um, wow. So very, very close to near death. After that, I swore off death tours and anywhere where there was snow for about four years after that. Well, no doubt. But what a what a, uh, a notch on your, your professional resume, so to speak. This this is a popular uh, aspect that the fans like to hear about. In in your your entirety of your career, you you must have. Uh, well, I shouldn't say you must have, but you you must have been aware of or pulled some great ribs your, yourself, or or, or uh, maybe had them done. To you. In 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 uh, you know, just boiling it down, do you have any that stand out in in your mind? Many. Uh, because when you're traveling a lot, you, you know, you, uh, I've always been a fan of those, of those types of ribs that aren't really malicious, 
but are really show you the character of an individual. Uh, and so if you're working with someone who's a jerk, this rib isn't going to work because they're not, they're not conscientious. Um, but uh, I can remember particularly, you know, and, and some ribs that have a nice slow burn where you get that payoff after like seven straight days of ribbing someone are like the most fulfilling of all. And I remember being on one tour in, in uh, Newfoundland where we were wrestling every night for like 17 straight days. And I was on the tour with a young guy at that time out of uh, Lethbridge, Alberta, who wrestles as Kyle Sebastian. And Kyle was one of those uh, kind of talents that if you show him something once, he's got it. Like he just is a, like a prodigy of professional wrestling. But what I found out on this tour, because we were doing a battle royal at the end of every night, it was the same card every day. I was in the opener with uh, Gerv Sierra from the Bollywood Boys. We opened the card every night. Kyle Sebastian was later on the card, and then they'd have a battle royal in the main event. And so the first night we're doing this battle royal, it's going to come down to myself and Kyle as uh, heels with Gerv Sierra as, as the conquering hero. And so I said, you know, well, let's do this spot where, you know, we've, we've got you on the run. When you get your comeback on us, big backdrop to me, big backdrop to Kyle, knock our heads together, and then we take it home from there. And that night I found out that Kyle Sebastian, for all the talent that he had and all the ability that he had, had never been trained how to do a backdrop. So I go and take my backdrop, and it's one of my favorite bumps to take because it looks big and dynamic, and the people are like, whoa, he threw him like 10 feet in the air. And Kyle went over, and it was kind of like, and I got to the back, and I'm kind of ribbing him about it. I'm like, what the heck was that? And he said, well, the building that they trained in when they wrestled had a low ceiling, so they weren't able to train, you know, bumps like that. So I said, well, geez, that was horrible. Like, we should start betting beers on these on these backdrops. So the next night, we went out and did it again. I said, okay, backdrop him, backdrop me. So I took the big bump, and he takes it. And again, it was kind of, I can see he's getting frustrated because he's not used to failing. And I get to the back, and I'm like, you owe me a beer. And he's, uh, he's frustrated, but he's like, okay. So the next day, we get to the venue, and he's like, could you please show me how to do a backdrop? And so I show him like how to do, you know, an elemental backdrop, not a, a high one, but to plant lower on the back. So we, we go out and I do the thing high in the air, Kyle, yeah, better than the last two nights, but still pretty awful. So we get to the back, Kyle, that's another beer you owe me, right? And now you see he's fired up. So the next day we get there and, and I say, you know, if you want to get a really high backdrop, you need to place your hands right on the guy's shoulder so that you've got the biggest extension as you go over. So we go out, boom, I go up, boom, he goes up. It's pretty even. We get to the back, and he says, I won. I said, no, no, you didn't. He goes, how, how come? I said, because you're six foot three, and I'm five foot ten. So if we got the same height, I'm working way harder than you. Now he's really mad, right? And that's three beers he owes me. So we get out there the next night, and I know he's got my number. And so just before we go out, we're getting ready for the Battle Royal. I pull Gerv Sierra aside and say, hey, Gerv, I've got an idea. Let's just change that spot a little bit. So as we're going out, I'm like, Kyle, you take the first backdrop today. So we go out, and Gerv whips him off and gives him this backdrop. And I swear, no word of a lie, Kyle Sebastian went 12 feet in the air. The most amazing backdrop I've seen in my life. Boom, he takes the bump. He rolls into the corner to watch me take mine. I come charging in into a drop toehold. And I look up at him and he's like biting his elbow pad because he wants to laugh. And he gets to the back and he goes, you owe me a beer. I win. I'm like, no, I don't. I didn't know he was going to change the spot. <laughs> and uh, it's a, it's a rib that I'm especially proud of. And it's one of those ones that, 
you know, in the cycle of wrestling that we do now where we wrestle maybe once a month or once every other month and we see these guys, it could never play out like that. It needs to have that night after night build uh, where it's it's one of the my, my proudest ribs that I've ever executed and uh, and still talk about and boast about to this day. Classic, classic. You're, you're in the history books yourself as having the most uh, Canadian <laughs> Uh, heavyweight uh, title reigns even ahead of uh, Leo Burke. We talked a little bit before coming on air. You, you've done, you, you're kind of doing some tag stuff now, and and that's enjoyable. But what in terms of your in-ring uh, career do you have? Do you have a goal that you'd like to accomplish, or or what's what's left for you in that aspect? You know, I I, I think uh, you know like having you know, tracks the stats for the book and things like that. There has been like things that have surprised me, you know, like when we uh, look at, uh, you know, even some of the stats that I'm compiling for the next projects that I'm doing, where it's like, oh, I had no idea, you know, that, uh, you know, in the history of battle royals in Canada, I've won more battle royals than all but three wrestlers ever. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of a neat stat. It wasn't a goal that I had ever had. I think at this point, you know, it's not really about uh, a specific milestone or achievement. It's it's more, I think at this point, uh, because I love wrestling so much, I really don't want to leave until I know that I've helped to make the next heel who can, who can do it as well as I can. And, uh, you know, there's lots of, you know, good wrestlers that are coming up on the scene. Um, not a lot of them have an opportunity to work with someone who has had as much time and had as much exposure across more territories than I have. So if, you know, when you look at young guys, their influence obviously is going to be what they see on television and that's great. And, and if that's where you aspire to be, yeah, you definitely want to understand what it is they're doing, who's doing what, how you could set yourself apart in that role. But at the same time, there's a lot of magic, as you know, that's different with the way that we present live house show wrestling, uh, you know, to crowds. So when we go to a community like Smith Falls, it might be the first time that there's been professional wrestling in that town in 10 years. And when you look out there and see that there's an eight-year-old in the crowd, they may never have seen wrestling live. Mm -hmm. So while they might have an exposure to WWE uh, or AEW and, and respond to those things, they also have never been worked by a by a professional that really knows their craft to the point where they're just like livid you know and i had this experience on saturday night in lethbridge when i came up for the match i saw there was this six-year-old boy right front row who was just hating me hard and he's just chirping and, and i sort of teased by sticking my head out through the ropes that i was going to come out and get him before the match and i sent him back to his seat but after the match now he's he's even more mad because i've stolen the win and he's up on his feet and he's like, you know, there's no guardrail at this event. So he's like right on the mats at ringside and he's like yelling at me from across the ring. So I go right for him and he realizes, oh, I might be in trouble. And he goes back and doesn't get in his seat. He stands behind his chair and I grab his chair from in front of him and I throw it about five feet out of the way. And now he's looking like I'm in real big trouble now. Nobody is saving me. And his survival instinct kicks in and he starts to try to kick me in the shins. And I sell it and I jump back, right? And then he realized that's working. He tries again. I jump back another five feet. Well, then the next thing you know, this little six-year-old boy is trying to like 
kick me in the shins and chases me out of the room, right? Right back through the curtain. Well, now this boy to that house is a hero. This boy just scared off the big bad villain. And my opponent went over and raised his arm right away and gave him the big like hero's welcome. We have made a fan for life there. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that fan is going to be talking about that story every time that my name is mentioned. Every mm-hmm. time they talk about going to the wrestling show. Right, You know that all this week, he's been talking about it with his buddies at school. And his family is going to bring it up. Like, you're not going to believe what happened with little Jack at the show. Mm-hmm. Like, he mm-hmm. chased this wrestler out of there and was trying to kick him in the leg. Right? And those are the types of experiences that you can't teach. Right? It, it's those spur-of-the-moment things. But those are the memories that the fans are going to have more so than who won or lost. And it's so very important and impactful. You know, I remember going to my first uh, independent wrestling show, uh, you know, at about 10 years old and being so uh, wrapped up emotionally in what was happening in the ring with this character who his name was Caveman Broda. And he was, you know, this average sized guy with a scraggly beard. And he had a, wore a pair of like 1970s style tennis shorts that had like a loincloth of fur just like sewn onto them, <laughs> like the cheesiest 80s wrestling gimmick. But he had a red T-shirt with iron-on letters in white that said commie. And at 10 years old, I don't know the politics of communism or anything like this, but this this commie heel has got me so stirred up that I'm standing up and I'm red-faced screaming. And, you know, 38 years later, I remember that. I can't remember who won that match or, who, or, or you know, or any of the finishes of the match that night. But I do remember that one heel. Uh, and then later on, you know, when I got into the wrestling business, I got to, to team with caveman Broda and it was like the most surreal thing ever, you know? (laughs) Um, so, you know, when I'm working with young guys, I'm trying to impress upon them that you can do all those fancy flips and people will react. Right. But just like if you're watching those fail army videos on online on YouTube or whatever, we see all those spills and we'll react and we'll be like, Oh God, that was awful. But not one of us has ever Googled, what's that guy from the Fail Army video doing now? Mm-hmm. Like, Is that guy okay? Did that guy really mess his face up? Did he break his leg? We don't care. We're not emotionally invested in that. We'll react mm-hmm. to the high spot. Mm-hmm. And so in the same way with wrestling, you know, we need to get over and stay over. And when you can create an emotional uh, investment from the fans in what you do, that they either love you or they hate you, they will remember you and they will buy tickets to see you again. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that for me, you know, when I'm looking at sort of, you know, the tail end of my career, I'm 48 years old now. There's, you know, there's not too much left on this road. It's making sure that as many people as possible that are coming up are approaching their craft in that way, where it's about being memorable, being marketable. Uh, being as valuable as you can to that promoter because ultimately if that promoter doesn't believe in you and that promoter's crowd doesn't believe in you, you're not coming back. Mm -hmm. Which which is why folks need to, and I know we're both very biased, but need to support independent wrestling because it's experiences like that and interactivity that you get with uh, the wrestlers that that necessarily does not happen in – uh, say a WWE house show or whatnot, and it's it's uh, experiences that that uh, people will will not soon forget, and a and a good value for uh, the entertainment dollar. 
Could you just briefly outline your role in the Cauliflower Alley Club and the the mandate of that organization and how fans can support such an important endeavor and give back to the industry that is that has provided so much joy to them? Yeah, you know, I first got involved with the Cauliflower Alley Club in uh, 2010, and I was introduced to it by the late Bob Leonard, who was a longtime photographer for Stampede Wrestling. And he said, I think you'd really dig this. I think you should come down to Vegas. And um, the Cauliflower Alley Club was actually started uh, in the 1960s by a wrestler turned actor, Mike Mazurki, at that time. And because Mike was successful in wrestling and then in Hollywood, when any of the wrestlers would fall on hard times, maybe their car broke down or, you know, they had trouble paying the rent or whatever it was that they needed. Maybe they actually had a medical situation. They would call Mike because he was the richest guy everybody knew. And they'd say, Hey Mike, I need some help. You know, I had this setback in life and, and, uh, and, you know, I need a few bucks. And what Mike would do is he would start a phone tree basically. And he'd say, Hey, our brother's in trouble. He needs some help. I'm in for a hundred bucks. What can I count you in for? And, you know, they would sort of pass the hat informally and wrestlers would take care of wrestlers. And it's just the way that it was done. Um, over the years, it's evolved. And now the membership of the Cauliflower Alley Club is over 600 members worldwide, not just wrestlers, but also uh, people associated with wrestling and longtime fans as well are now members. Um, and the, the mandate is still the same to support wrestlers in need. So, uh, you know, as we know, a lot of wrestlers, you know, have given physically of themselves over decades uh, with no health benefits at all to, to speak of. And now later on in life, when all those bumps are catching up with them and now they need to get a new knee or a new hip uh, or because of their infirmary, they're not able to work. And now they're maybe have their homes at risk. The Cauliflower Alley Club is able to support, uh, you know, those individuals. You know, myself uh, in 2015, I had a spinal fusion of my lower back. Um, uh, L4, L5, the disc between those two vertebrae had completely deteriorated. Uh, and so for six months, I was like limping around like an old man. I wasn't able to even stand up straight. Uh, and when I got the surgery done to fuse my lower spine, they said, you're going to be off work for six or eight weeks. And I'm like, I can't afford to be off work for eight weeks. You know, I just started a new job. So my benefits hadn't kicked in yet. Uh, and so I was able to reach out to the Cauliflower Alley Club uh, and get a bit of a uh, a grant from them that allowed me to stay home and, and, and fully recover, uh, you know, from that surgery and then get back to an optimum of life. And they, they do, you know, in small increments, you know, those, those grants may be, you know, between 500 and $2,000. Uh, but they're issuing some years, you know, up to $168,000 in grant funding in support of professional wrestlers, uh, for, you know, health concerns or social concerns, uh, you know, sometimes it's for someone to get a, the, the uh, wheelchair equipped to van, you know, to support them in later life. Or if they've had a natural disaster for some of those wrestlers that live down in hurricane country and Mississippi and Florida. Um, you know, so it's it's a cause that's been very uh, close to me. And for the past four years, I've served as the editor of the newsletter uh, and then try to make it down to as many reunions as possible as well. Um as part of the annual reunion in Las Vegas, they also have uh, some recognition awards. And so I've been involved in some of those award committees and particularly helping to influence the direction of that. So in 2023, um, 
at my insistence and I guess persuasiveness, uh, we finally have an independent wrestling award uh, recognized by the Cauliflower Alley Club. And it was issued uh, for the first time at their reunion this past fall uh, to Rhea Von Slasher, mm-hmm. you know, a 20 year veteran of Canadian professional wrestling. And so I was incredibly proud of, of having that acknowledgement for a very large sector of what is the wrestling industry today and that it went to such a deserving candidate as the first honoree. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to uh, this year's uh, convention in August in Las Vegas, where I'll be covering that for, for this channel. Awesome. Do you, do you see uh, any growth development? I mean, you, you've got fans that are able to join and be, um, and be members. Is, is there anything else? Can they, can they provide uh, donations or anything along those lines to, to the organization if they so desire? Yeah, absolutely. So the best way to do that is to go to the website, caulifloweralleyclub.org, and there is a a button to donate. Um, When you become a member, you also get the newsletter. I'll give you a plug for that. I don't have the current issue right immediately at hand, but uh, you get the the quarterly newsletter with about 20 pages of information about what's going on in and around the club, what's happening with some of the members. which is, you know, a great advantage for people that are in the industry to be able to connect with other people as well and talk about some of the great things that are happening. Mm. Well, very much looking forward to that. Vance, you, you've been uh, very generous with your time this afternoon, but before, before we go, I want to give you the opportunity once again to uh, let the fans know where they can pick up uncontrolled chaos. I literally cannot uh, recommend it enough well i mean uh, for fans all around the world uh we've got uh, you know print agreements with a number of different uh uh printers across the country or across around the world uh including in the uk in particular so there's opportunities for you to go to your local booksellers and find it directly uh at a better price than you could even get on amazon it is available on amazon as well in hardcover and paperback and also in ebook format and uh, aside from that, I definitely would encourage you to get out to as many independent wrestling shows if you're in Canada, uh, wherever I'm appearing, because I typically will have a handful of books, uh, you know, toted with me in my bag as I'm making the, the trips for across the country. Yes, I, I know at our at our shows, uh, they sold uh, really, really well. So in, in terms of fans keeping up with you personally on your social media platforms and all your upcoming appearances where 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 can they can they do that yeah the very uh, best place is uh facebook uh because i seem to have the most time for that so uh, vance nevada canadian professional wrestler page on facebook and i'm also on instagram beefyg underscore vance and uh i'm i'm just learning insta so uh I try to keep content up to date on that uh, but uh, between those two uh, platforms, that's usually uh, the easiest place to find out what's up. And we try to post uh, new content daily and uh, see me antagonize people uh, across the country. Excellent. Well, fans, if, if you are in Canada and do have the opportunity to, to see Vance, I, uh, I have to strongly encourage you to do so. The man is a professional, knows his craft inside and out and uh, always gives you the his money's worth and uh, makes the show a better show uh with his with his involvement in it but 
for for now, Vance, I, I want to thank you for coming on the Cheap Heat Productions Wrestling Podcast today, sir. My pleasure to be here, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, fans, that's it for this edition. Until next time, I will see you down the road. Take care, everybody. <laughs>